Welcome to the Ankler Podcast. This is Sean McNulty from the Wake Up Newsletter here at the Ankler here in New York City on uh, the afternoon of Thursday, October 26th. It's a special uh, Sean has a cold edition, so you're getting that totally free of charge. But my apologies for any uh, cold medicine induced uh, tangents. Elaine, we can fix that in post, right? Yeah, absolutely. All the tacking. <laughs> that I'll keep to a minimum, but if I start wandering off into a haze of you know uh, cold medication, be like, thoughts, okay, okay, Grandpa, back to Comcast. Uh, yeah, training. exactly. If I start talking about MTV News again, just uh, just bring me back. That, that, that'll be my, that'll be our cue. That, of course, is Elaine Lowe, as always. Peter Kiefer is back with us as well, and uh, Richard Rushfield, uh, all in Los Angeles, which is good social distancing for me today. A lot going on this week. Uh, we'll dive into all those latest numbers over uh, at NBCU. We have the latest on the on the strike front with uh, SAG AFTRA, as well as Lane's conversation with uh, with Ralph Nader, diving into what's afoot in his world. We have a couple of pieces at the Ankler this week, looking at the big week at CA with uh, one of their leading agents and a big controversy that has been kind of uh, enveloping the town in terms of the conversation this week. And we're going to round out. It is Halloween week here uh, in town. Richard had a fun piece this week, inviting some people. Uh, People to uh, share some Hollywood horror stories from the years, whether it's from pitch meetings to executive meetings and things along those lines of things that stand out in their executive career. So uh, Richard will regale us with a couple of tales from that piece. But first, uh, Elaine, so, you know, what is the latest uh, with sag after? So, yeah, thought there was a meeting happening yesterday. And then at the, all of a sudden, toward the end of the afternoon, it's like, psych, actually, we're going to meet tomorrow. So they're meeting today with the studio chiefs in the room, which is a good sign, one would suppose. They were, of course, spotted at République earlier this week oh, oh. in the middle of negotiations on, I believe it was uh, Monday or Tuesday. Is that a diner in L.A. I'm not aware of? Or what is that? Yeah, what is diner. That? Well, Bob Iger, David Zaslav, uh, Donna Langley, and Ted Sarandos were at a yes, at, at a diner, a fancy little French <laughs> diner called République out French here, diner, which yes, has really excellent, like twenty-two dollar kimchi fried rice, which you would not expect from a French restaurant, but I kind of love it there. There you go. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So, so talks are ongoing. Still, sort of the same sticking points. My understanding from what wide heard happened in the room on Tuesday, the last time they were in the room, is that there was more talk about money than AI, but presumably they'll be focusing back on the core issues that were sticking points when talks broke down the other week. And I guess the revenue share thing, they came with some proposal, but who knows what that was. Yeah, or, yeah that's, you know, that's, that's still that's, a tough one. That's a tough nut to crack. That's the big one that seems to still kind of kind of be out there. For a while, everything I read, it didn't sound like, oh, yeah, about a week this should be done. It sounded like there was still quite a bit of work here uh, ahead of Lane. Is that probably an accurate assessment? I, th I feel like we're right in that point between despair and cautious optimism, like whatever that midpoint is. Oh, that's where Richard lives, I think, actually. That's yeah, <laughs> that's usually his uh, his wheelhouse. There you go. Knows it very well. I, I'm not a fan of optimism, so uh, <laughs> despair is all I need. Despair it is. Yeah. Despair away, my <laughs> friends. Uh, well, you, of course, uh, can keep up with all that over at strikegeist.com with Elaine's newsletter over there, totally free of charge. She will keep you up to speed there. I was, of course, on the, the Comcast call this morning, uh, Q3 earnings. No talk of the strike, Elaine. So curious. Although I guess Comcast is a large enough company where there's enough buffer and insulation from the telecom side of things, right? To well, not have to, to be spared a strike question from the analyst? Or were the analysts just doing oh, their <laughs> analyst thing? <laughs> the analyst didn't even ask a question. Uh, yeah, that was Wall Street didn't care and uh, Comcast management. In their defense, anything is 82% of their 
profits were from the broadband and phone and uh, video bundle business. So, you know, NBC Universal isn't exactly what the company's being judged on. The stock was down 6%, not because of, well, uh, partially because of things at NBC Universal. Their, their advertising was down 8% year over year, which is uh, still a $2 billion a quarter business, Elaine. So uh, not nothing uh, when that starts to, to hemorrhage a little bit there. Of course, not having a fall schedule might do that. NBC actually is the one network that does have some new shows, but not certainly the Dick Wolf shows, not, you know, their big guns outside of The Voice this fall. So definitely was showing up in the numbers airline. I am and am not surprised that they didn't field any questions during the Q&A about the strike. It's a little bit like you got nothing on this. And so uh, Mike Cavanaugh did say one thing, but in lieu of another question, it was a question about advertising. And saying, you know, again, reiterating, uh, and they didn't talk about that. That wasn't part of their prepared remarks. That was actually Wall Street asking, oh, by the way, how's that whole NBC business doing uh, that you guys have that apparently you guys did not want to talk about? I like the uh, air quotes around that, John. Yeah, well, that was not a direct quote, though, for example. They don't think they said NBC. (laughs) Just linear TV business was probably the reference on it. But he was saying, you know, we're seeing some softness. It's not getting any worse, but it's not getting any better, essentially, is what the the, the tenor of the ad market. But did say that he did uh, note that because of the strike, it's funny. He said, I think he said strike once, but like five seconds after that, the call dropped out for about, about five seconds. <laughs> totally. Oh, I'm going yeah. through a tunnel, yeah, guys. It was, it was a little bit of a, I was like, did that just go out like five seconds after he said strike? But in the sense that the streamers are not spending as much advertising in Q3 because there are not as many shows to advertise and they've pulled back on advertising. So that was a, an effect of the strike that they were seeing was a pullback, a bigger pullback in ad dollars than they would usually expect in Q3 across, you know, across the Comcast and across the, certainly the NBC and, and cable networks there. So, But that was it, Elaine. Uh, and Wall Street just did not bring it up. There was plenty of talk of uh, NBCU on the call. It wasn't like it was all, you know, broadband and mobile phones all the time. But uh, yeah, that was a, that was about it. So, oh, equity analysts never change. That's uh, yeah, great quarter, everybody. That was literally it wasn't it wasn't great that quarter, guys. Some way it was a very promising quarter, whatever it was. Yeah, I don't know. Theme parks doing well. A lot, you know, a lot of you know that they had their biggest quarter of profitability ever. So you know that that business yeah. is firing and also. Yeah. And I mean, again, new. like Comcast has sort of that plausible deniability they, 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 in terms I, of like they have they have defense. a lot of other sectors of the business. They have the broadband, they have the parks and everything. Right. But you know, speaking of a, a company that has a, a large parks profitable parks business, it's like I can't imagine a Disney call not getting a question about the strike, you know? Right. That's all they have is theme parks that isn't related to it in a sense. And then ESPN, which is its own, you know, issue at this point. So yeah, exactly. And Warner Brothers, yeah, those two, which are on November 8th, I believe, will be and Paramount's next week. So that'll definitely be three companies who... <laughs> I would hope that either they mentioned the strike or Wall Street asked them about the, about the strike, but one of the two will be a little more heavy in that conversation. So they're building new theme parks all over the place there at Comcast. Yeah, no, they were they were listing them off. There's one in L.A., another addition in L.A. or something going on right now. So they're yeah, really happy they, about they, that. They got a new one in Orlando, like Texas, Las Vegas. Uh, who needs movies anymore? <laughs> exactly. And curiously, actually, the movies. You know, it was it was the Oppenheimer quarter. You know, you know, and uh, they made more revenue last uh, summer in Q3 because Minions was a, a essentially a bigger hit, and and also the last Jurassic World movie was like a mid June release, so most of the, a lot of that money came in July. So it wasn't even a record summer for them, even with Oppenheimer doing close to a you know a billion dollars. So that was kind of a, a curious fun fact. But uh, films are you know, Richard, the, the Universal Pictures profitable, the very very much in the black. So. 
Mm-hmm. They're very happy with the business. Two of the biggest hits of the year. And, and the great moral victory of Strays. <laughs> was not mentioned on the call. How dare that they? That, <laughs> hiding their light under a bushel there. Yeah, exactly. I think that actually was working against that Q3 to comparison there, Richard. But we'll leave it, we'll leave it where it is. Either way, we, we can campaign on... And of course, Peacock added 4 million subscribers. They said largely due to Comcast subscribers who were getting it for free, now signing up for it. So 28 million. But again, you saw some softness in the number lane where the revenue only went up $10 million in the quarter from Q2 to Q3. They added 4 million new customers, but the revenue did not go up accordingly because, again, there was some advertising business softness, whether that was because of the ad market or because, you know, of, again, the streamer pullback, Elena, people just not advertising as much in Q3. How did that so. sub gain fare against expectations? Was there an expectation? Um, you know, they've been adding about two, three million a quarter. So probably a little bit above average, but um, that's not bad. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's fine. It's not, you know, it's just that you're losing $550 million a quarter. That's all. <laughs> That's all. And they're, you know, the t- 2023 will be the peak year for losses at Peacock, which I said before, and 2024 will be an improvement, but there's still no timeline as to when will you actually break even on your streaming business. And it, when you're losing now $2.8 billion this year, and, you know, uh, it's probably a couple of billion next year. Um, That's a long way to go. And for a U.S. only you know, essentially a streaming service. So more to come there, but that was all fun and games. You can read uh, the full breakdown there, of course, in the Wake Up newsletter, uh, which I wrote this morning. So breaking all those numbers down. And Elaine, you talked to Ralph Nader uh, this week. So tell me about this. I What's sure up? did. I talked to four-time presidential candidate. Uh, Sorry. Uh, yes. Your 2000 Green Party candidate, as many of us recall, uh, Ralph Nader, uh, who I did not realize is a longtime SAG-AFTRA member. Did you guys know that? I didn't know that. He uh, apparently had well, done— Well, Peter, Peter has this poster behind him in his room, so he might have he known that. <laughs> Peter, Peter, are you aware of this? You know, I, I, have to, I have been a Nader fan all my life, but I was not aware that he was a card-carrying member, so I learned a lot from, from Elaine's excellent piece. Nice. Yeah, apparently it was explaining to me that you would get it back in the day from being on like morning TV shows and radio. And he was also, as I found in a in a like a time machined Washington Post story and the 1977 reboot of Laugh In. Uh, oh, OK. Yeah. All qualifying things. Was not a recurring uh, guest on The Love Boat, apparently. So, oh, no, well, that would have been. Not. Yeah, no, no. Come on now, Richard. That's, you know. <laughs> but Nader had reached out because he had an unanswered letter to SAG after President Fran Drescher. He had some uh, suggestions for the direction of the strike. So I got a chance to talk to him and also longtime labor organizer and union activist uh, Ray Rogers, who was very active in the J.P. Stevens, you know, the union's activity against J.P. Stevens back in the 70s, which became the basis for Sally Field's Norma Ray. Uh, he was also part of a, the subject of a documentary, American Dreams, by Barbara Koppel, which won an Oscar uh, for that 1990 docu about the Meatpackers Union's fight against Hormel. So they both have a great deal of ideas on where to go from here and the strike. And so I would encourage you guys to read the piece on The Angler. Curious what other active members' thoughts are. Curious what what other folks in the industry think of, um, you know, uh, what their feelings are at this stage. Cool. You always can find Elaine at Elaine at TheAngler.com, of course. Uh, there's some AI. Was some AI talking that as well, Elaine? Yeah, yeah. He had some thoughts about AI. I mean, obviously, it's like this is just such a fast-moving technology, and Nader is no stranger to to sort of moving to regulate fast-moving technology because he, of course, in 1965, wrote Unsafe at Any Speed, challenging American automakers and their designs. Like, I think it was like the Chevy Corvair and, and, you know, just 
these these cars that had some safety issues, which is, I think, sort of analogous when you're looking at like, hey, here's a fast moving technology. What are some kinds of regulations or or oversight that we should have over it? So I know that seemed like a long time ago, but I thought it was an interesting parallel. Cool. All right. Definitely go check that piece out over at theangler.com. Just looking ahead next week in earnings, uh, what's on the radar? Fox and Paramount, the two big ones, uh, both on Thursday. We have Sirius on Monday, Altice and Fubo adding to cord cutting, uh, which was not pretty Elaine as well at Comcast. Another 490,000 people cut their cable bundle. Charter is up in the morning. So we shall see what happens there. But that is continuing to go at a pretty bad clip. But I'll be uh, breaking all that down in the wake up, of course, which you can get as part of your Ankler subscription. Just go to theankler.com. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Um, but upcoming next, we're going to get all the insight uh, from both Peter and Richard on the week that was in the uh, top levels of the CAA executive ranks. Um, we'll be back in a moment. All right, so the uh, week began at the Ankler with a very widely read piece, Peter, with, with our uh, our friends at CAA. Uh, what would you set up how the week started off here in town? A lot of lot of chatter around this. Yeah, our beloved colleague uh, Claire Atkinson had a, a bit of a bombshell that dropped on a Sunday afternoon. I helped out a little bit on some of the reporting uh, and followed it quite closely. So um, it all started uh, as so many awful stories do with an Instagram post that um, was posted by a very prominent, uh, one of the most powerful agents in the entertainment industry, a woman by the name of um, uh, Maha Dakil. And the uh, Instagram post, which was only up for about an hour or so before she promptly took it down, caused a huge outrage because it, it basically accused Israel. It was a repost from an, a pre, another Instagram account, but the message accused Israel of committing genocide. And the term genocide was in it in its ongoing campaign in the war against Hamas and in, on all the, the bombing that's going on in Gaza right now, all that horrific stuff. The post obviously set off the town and... Like I said, it was quickly dropped, uh, pulled down, and then it felt like for a flash that maybe it was going to blow over. And then on on Sunday, and uh, we got wind that the principals at CAA were going to remove Maha as the co-chief of CAA's motion picture department and had asked her to step down from the uh, what's known as the agency's internal agency board, which was a serious slap on the wrist, especially for somebody who was discussed for years as a likely successor uh, to the three main principals who have been running that agency for over two decades, Brian Lord, Kevin Huvain and and Richard Lovett. Um, so it has been the subject of immense amount of discussion across uh, the industry. Maha cuts a very big figure as a, a leader, both within the agency, but has taken prominent roles on various advocacy groups. She was a founding member of the, uh, the Time's Up organization and is one of the most powerful client lists uh, in the entertainment industry. So this slight fall, it's not actually the significant fall for Maha uh, was, was a huge deal. Everyone knows Maha. She is widely respected. And I think in, in some quarters of the industry, widely feared, which is typical of an agent of her stature. And the sort of fallout is continuing. We haven't, I don't think she's done an interview quite yet. Richard had an excellent column and I'm eager to hear from him, but it's a very complicated story just because of obviously this topic is just so explosive and so nuanced. I mean, I, I, it's hard to think of a topic where 
I mean, to ultimately take a side in this thing, you really have to, I think, it's incumbent on you to really realize that this goes back so far. There's so many layers to this. And you're wading into what is just the most explosive, you know, geopolitical topic we're facing today. So she clearly stepped in it. She's apologized since. Um, and she's, she's, been, she's been punished. The question now is, what happens to her moving forward? And I want to turn it over to Richard, but the other point that needs to be said is that Amaha is obviously a woman, and you got to question, is she being treated in the same way that a man would? You know, to get to the, that that perch of power that she's arrived at, you have to make enemies over the years. It's just, that's just the nature of the entertainment industry, and that's the nature of, of being a super agent. Um, so the knives were kind of out for her, and it's hard to delineate if what she did was so bad or was the backlash more of a reflection of the opportunism out there to sort of cut her off at the knees when after she's made a, a, a screw-up that she acknowledged? But uh, Richard wrote an, a fantastic column today, and I, I know he's got some interesting thoughts to share. Thank you, Peter. Yeah, I, were, I, I was just sort of taking stock of this. This The, the Maha story is uh, fascinating because it and very hard to write about because it sort of brings together every very loaded culture war uh, fight that Hollywood has had in the last five years under the banner of one big fight here, anti-Semitism, gender, minorities, social media, canceling, all this stuff is brought together. So I, as uh, Peter said, this is this is pretty much all everyone's been talking about uh, while we wait for news of about the strike this week. And the playbook of the outrage machine is pretty well said at this point that someone says something outrageous they try to hold on to their job they inevitably are thrown overboard and uh and and few people survive that uh there's an added nuance in this one there's kind of a double fight because a lot of people who took big stands on every single culture war issue that has come along have decided that they're going to sit out the uh Israel Hamas one for uh, for for different reasons, so there's kind of layers of accusations of anti-Semitism, and this one Instagram text that used a unfortunate word in it and was up for one hour has uh, has fallen right in the center of it. And Hollywood loves a downfall, and it especially loves a downfall of a high-flying female executive on the rise. And Maha was. Very much that she was, uh, she, she, and she still is, uh, sort of the heir apparent to see it no less than CAA, the biggest agency, um, in Hollywood. So you can imagine the glee on her, her colleagues' face when, when it, when it was announced to them that she had just made a mistake on Instagram dealing with this. And, uh, yeah, agencies are not known to be supportive, cuddly places. You know, you don't hear stories of Brian Lord walking down the hall saying, hey, I'm running down to the store. Can I pick anybody up a drink while I'm down there? Or anyone need a sandwich? And you've been hearing lots of stories this week about how Maha had, uh, had, had very sharp elbows and she was very tough, which is not something anyone would ever whisper about Brian Lord or Ari Emanuel as if it was some kind of uh, to use against them. That would be the case of Brian Lord say, well, he has sharp elbows. He's He's really, really tough. And every time there's one of these feeding frenzies about a, a downfall in Hollywood, it always seems to be a, about a female executive. And she is not only a female executive, she is the only female executive at the upper echelons of leadership at the most powerful agency 
in Hollywood, which has never had a female at or close to its helm in its in its entire uh, almost fifty year history there, as as have every which is identical to the history of every other uh, talent agency in Hollywood. So I just looked at that and also was talking about a lot of my Jewish friends, I'm Jewish myself, were looking at this and saying, in all these other things, every every time a person made a joke, they were, you know, run out of town on a rail so fast that they couldn't pack their bags, like all these other things. And now when someone makes a joke about Israel, somehow we're all supposed to forgive and it's supposed to be all right. And I appreciate the irony of that and I appreciate the unfairness of that, but the idea that we've been in a crazy witch hunt feeding frenzy for five years, so now which we should get to have one on this case is very unconvincing to me. And I, I in a struggle that that we're now in uh, for humanity and you know against nihilism, as I've written on various fronts around the world, um, to start by recognizing the humanity and recognize she she posted a unfortunate tweet. And I in my piece, I talked to friends of hers who uh, have been in touch with her. And she has said she she has said she was parroting what was coming across her echo chamber. She feels she is not, this is not someone parading up and down with a sign, you know, saying, go Hamas. This is she, she did something unfortunate where, where she was parroting things she had seen on social media without thinking. It was about an hour later, Guy O'Siri, her friend, called her up and brought it to her attention. And she took it down uh, immediately and apo- apologized for it. And she's not defending Hamas. Her friends say that she she says now she is she is against Hamas for what it's worth. She supports, she says Israel has a right to defend itself is what she's saying. And she is calling her Jewish friends and listening to them and hearing her perspective. perspective. And I think if we cannot forgive that in this context, then uh, then then who are we and what's what's the point here? Yeah, just and just be you know an honest conversation about it, Richard, and to fault someone sometimes for that is, well, it's on to everybody's own personal take on that, but it's important to be recognized, I think. You know, it's it's been an ugly atmosphere for years here around all this stuff and around anyone making a mistake and saying anything un, unfortunate. And there has been no room for forgiveness or second chances. I know a bunch of non-famous people who have had their careers ended because of stuff they said or how they, uh, how, how they actually, things that I told you, you would say very insignificant or totally misunderstood mm. moments. But this time it affects Jews, of which I, I am one, or impacts them, and I would rather take this moment to begin to practice forgiveness. And Scott Galloway said on his podcast, uh, uh, while he was grappling with a similar thing, he, he said, we should all be slower to anger to forgive. And uh, I think that's a good thing to put in everyone's head right now. Yeah, I just there's two other just quick elements of this that I'd like to mention and it has to do with timing. What happened with Maha is not isolated just to her. There's a larger discussion or debate happening across the enter- entertainment industry about taking sides in in what's happening in the Middle East in in the, in the war between Israel and, and Hamas. And there's been other controversies. There have been lots of chatter and lots of discussion about how institutions in the entertainment industry, which historically has had, as Richard noted in his column, a very high concentration uh, of Jews and has been very much identified with Jewish Jewishness and, and has ties to Israel. And there has been a, a lot of criticism and hand-wringing about how and why institutions uh, have been responding, either in favor 
or lacking in, in their support of Israel. So this, this is not just specific to Maha. So I think that that's oh, yeah. part of yeah. it. But the WGA went through a lot, is still going through this with a lot of uh, its members, Peter. Precisely, yes. The whole the whole controversy surrounding. So she, she this came out at a moment when things were already boiling. So I feel like this just sort of kicked this kicked this whole thing off uh, in a whole new way. The other element of timing that I think is worth noting is that this came right on the heels of uh, the the Francois Henri Pinal's acquisition of a majority stake of CAA. And this is coming internally for people who write about CAA, which I do. This is coming at a sensitive moment internally. Uh, for CAA because the top agents um, at CAA are talking to the principals about their future there. And Maha is one of these individuals. They're all trying to sort out what their careers are going to look like moving forward with this whole new ownership structure. Um, So there's been speculation that some people are going to be offered more lucrative contracts than others. Maha is clearly somebody who has performed um, so it's it, it's an op- it comes about in an opportunity for people who 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 would like to knock her down. It's given them an, an opportunity to try and sort of undermine her. And I think internally you're seeing that. I agree with Richard. I think this is a moment to allow humanism to to seep through, and let's hopefully can find a way to for- forgive people who make mistakes and admit it. Well said, Peter. Uh, again, highly recommending you go check those pieces out over at theangler.com for some great perspectives uh, across the board there. All right, we're going to round out the week here. It is Halloween weekend, a great transition here, but uh, that's all I got. So uh, we're going to be back in a moment to uh, hear Richard's uh, scary stories from around town and uh, talk about the weekend ahead here, as well as some new information around uh, Killers of the Flower Moon that Peter has unearthed this week. So we'll get to that in a moment, but uh, first, a quick break. All right, it's uh, coming into Halloween weekend, uh, Elaine's favorite time of year. Uh, Elaine, do you have a costume set? You and the kids going out as uh, what? Do you, what do you, are you staying within SAG rules? What do you? What's, what's the weekend hold for you? <laughs> yes, we've we've scrapped our plans to go as Ken and Barbie, and uh, <laughs> no, we my my eight year old requested that we go as those uh, you know those big inflatable T Rexes. Sure, yeah, that you see all over TikTok or whatever. All right. Yeah, so so that's that's what my investment, that's what my outfit investment is this year. <laughs> nice. This isn't a Jurassic World complication now, is it? Or we're gonna be we're gonna be good on that? Is that not generic T Rex? Generic T Rex, not branded in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> not a not a product of the uh, Universal Pictures uh, merch group. Richard, you had a, another fun piece this week earlier this week, uh, revisiting some. Some horror stories uh, from around town from the executive set over the years. I just want you to set up uh, what you had there uh, earlier this week. Yeah, so I asked some some uh, people I know, friends of mine from in Hollywood, uh, to recount some of their their greatest real life Hollywood horror movies. Because even greater than the horrors that Hollywood puts out on the screen are the horrors that Hollywood uh, <laughs> perpetrates on itself. And yeah, and rounded up a dozen of the of, of the best I got uh, here. All right, give me two of them. What do, what do you got, Richard? Two of the favorites here. Uh, this one is entitled "The Big Sleep," and it's submitted by a writer director. A few years back, I was asked to pitch on a remake of one of my favorite films. I jumped at the chance, went ham on the pitch and a deck, made it past the first few gauntlets until only one remained to pitch my take to a venerable, legendary, iconic producer. The icon would be the final decider. So I was all excited 
and I pay out of pocket to fly across the country and pitch the legend in person. Kids, if you're worried about me at this point, you're very, very smart. My pitch was in the late afternoon on a Friday. I sat in the boiling hot waiting room, listening to the producers laugh with delight at whoever was pitching before me. Laughing like a lot. So, I should note that my take involved the following keywords. Appalachia, opioid crisis, trailer park. But yeah, they were laughing, like a lot, at the person before me. It's finally my turn, and after some intros, I jump in. As the late afternoon sun fries a veritable hole in the conference room table, the venerable, legendary icon producer falls asleep. Obviously, this means I'm not getting this job. See kids in Hollywood, when an icon falls asleep in a meeting, no one dares wake them up. It would be like waking a sleeping giant if the giant could fire you. So we all had to pretend it wasn't happening, and I finished the pitch knowing there was no way they could hire me. And they didn't, because they were looking for something a little lighter. I was going to get the feedback. I feel like we need to be around a fire, like a campfire with doors. (laughs) Just burning scripts, Elaine, burning burning pitches. We should throw throw pitches on the fire. Yeah, yeah. All right, Richard, give us a second. This one was definitely one of my favorites. So lean into this one if you would. This, uh, This one is entitled, It All Goes Black from a Screenwriter Friend. I once wrote a script that was purchased for a major action star of the day. We had a a meeting with the studio executives and the star to talk about his his thoughts on the script. Star, spoken in thick Austrian accent. I like the first 48 pages, and then it goes a little flat. Me. Okay, sure. What do you think we should do from there? Star. Nobody told these guys. We look around the room full of executives, a skinny guy in an army green t-shirt looks at us and says, have you ever met Shane Black? Uh, Shane Black, I will note. (laughs) For the the record, yes, for background here, Peter. Record is, Richard, yeah. Was the top screenwriter, uh, certainly the top action screenwriter of Hollywood in the, uh, in, in the era when this story was set, the, the early nineties. Yeah, so the writer Predator and The Long Kiss Goodnight and several other, yes, big action movies from the 90s for sure. So, yeah. uh, exactly. Good, good, good. The nice Austrian accent, you know, uh, maybe we'll do a little work on it, but, you know, not bad, not bad. We can workshop it, but uh, a and lot you, of fun stories there, Richard, for sure. Yeah, go ahead and uh, see if you can figure out what the film involving Shane Black and an Aust- Austrian action star uh, was. <laughs> yeah, you can piece that one together on the IMDb for sure. Uh, Peter, any uh, horror stories in your renders? Is, is your life just fun and fancy free? here oh you know i the horror in my life is having to figure out what costume i'm going to wear over the weekend for my uh <laughs> my daughter's yeah, apparently t-rex is uh where you got lane has a hookup if you want to you know get a get in on that yeah i think i'm going to dust off my my sad clown uh costume from a couple <laughs> years ago it's simple and and lazy and uh it's kind of my mood right now 
That, that, that does sound sad, Peter. So that, that, goes, <laughs> that, that goes hand in hand. Yeah. Certainly plenty of scares at the box office this weekend. Uh, wouldn't be Halloween without a, a Blumhouse pick, of course. This year, Five Nights at Freddy's. Elaine, I guess you're probably not going to that. Am I, uh, am I uh, correct? You have not pre-bought that Hard ticket? Hard pass. But not Hard because I'm, sh- I'm sure it's great, but just not for me. <laughs> just not for you. Well, it is for a lot of people. It's tracking at over $50 million, which is, uh, you know, really quite a number. Um, a lot of exhibitors are even thinking it may, may go uh, quite a bit higher than that. We shall see. It's also premiering on Peacock, same day and date, so which is even even more impressive. So that'd be kind of fun to watch to round out uh, the big October here at the box office. A lot of uh, eyes on week two of Killers of the Flower Moon, Peter. And you had some interesting or you have some interesting insight coming on the horizon here around that movie. Yeah, I've been, um, for the past couple of days, I've been uh, doing a little reporting on what the deal points were between um, Apple when they picked up that project uh, from Paramount, who which, which stayed on as the distributor. It's of interest because there was a big, huge bidding war for the project. It was all packaged up with, you know, obviously Scorsese and Leonardo and Robert De Niro. And uh, it was a feeding frenzy at the time. And some of the deal points are, are quite interesting. The sourcing that I have is Paramount feels pretty good about the way they walked away from those negotiations. I don't want to give away too much quite yet because I'm still just uh, dotting my I's and crossing the T's here. But uh, it's, a, it's a little window into the, you know, this notion of we're, we've all moved on to streaming and yet there's still a lot of money uh, to be made if you have uh, the distribution infrastructure that the, a dwindling number of companies uh, do. And then as we've seen over the summer, as we were talking about earlier, you know, there's, I don't want to say it's a roaring comeback of the theatrical box office, but it's looking pretty healthy it's, right it's, now. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, anyways, it, it should be a fun little interesting story about the, you know, the, the, the deal points that Paramount was able to negotiate for itself uh, at a moment when it, it appeared that theatrical box office was on its way out. So, uh, look, look out for it. It should be dropping in the next 24 hours. All right. Check that out over the angler.com. All right. We're going to round out here, Richard. Any final scary movie viewing recommendations for the folks at home or, or Elaine? Uh, well, maybe not Elaine. Listen, I'm still trying to think if I've seen three horror movies in my entire life. <laughs> if, if Elaine wants to see a third movie, Richard, what, what would you recommend she see? <laughs> I mean, any horror movie of the seventies is where you should you should start. I mean, pretty right, much every back. every nineteen seventies horror movie is great. But uh, I've my, seen The Exorcist and I've seen The Ring. I cannot name a third. Well, those, <laughs> those are two very good ones. Uh, did, you, did you see the original uh, the original version of The Ring? The oh, the Japanese, Japanese version? version. Yes. Yeah. No. Ring Ringu, or I think it's called. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, even scarier. Uh, oh, so gosh. if you want extra scary, and and then if you want extra fun, going on uh, going on YouTube and seeing people dressed up as uh, the 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 girl from that Samara and uh, uh, jumping out at people in elevators and uh, <laughs> scaring them, which is a is a great genre. Well, that look that look I'm familiar with. That's like me on a deadline pulling an all nighter. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, well, then, all right. Well, then I'm going to fill in your decade. All right. So uh, I'm going to give you an '80s movie that I watched. In retro, one of those things we're watching in retrospect way too young, but yeah. <laughs> it was the 80s and uh, cable was very new, as was HBO. So, who really knows? But Poltergeist, uh, Poltergeist, yes, which was, a, I believe, a PG 13 movie at the time. Which, looking back on it, everybody's like, How the heck? I was tell you, PG 13 movie. Well, that that shows you because the, the scariest what what's the scariest scene from that, Sean? You you know what it is. Well, there's a uh, well. Do you want to go maggots or do you want to go the pool? You know, uh, there's the a kitchen, couple of the, the kitchen chairs scene. Okay, all which, right. Which will show you it, it. It is a scene that has absolutely no effects, 
Yes, Nothing it's very old school. Involves yeah. the the chairs moving, and it's the scariest scene. Uh, uh, one of the scariest scenes in movie history of of nothing but nothing but you don't even see the chairs move. Uh, so uh, <laughs> it's all in uh, your head, Elaine. Ooh. See, that's actually up my alley. I just don't like horror movies that have lots of blood and gore. No, not not a lot of that going on. No, there's definitely a few things, but not it's not that kind of a horror movie. So it's yeah, Richard said it's it's a very it's very practical. It's PG. You know, well, the, it, it's uh, th- yeah, I guess it was, it, well, it wasn't a PG. There was no PG thirteen. Right? No PG thirteen. It was a PG. Right, it was PG. Yeah, which right. you'll watch right. it and be like, how did this happen? Um, but the scariest, yeah, def- the scariest movie of the eighties though is The Shining. So. Yeah, that is 80, I guess, 1980, is that? 80 or 81, yeah. Okay, yeah, The Shining was also on my list there, but uh, and that's that's a dead of winter movie, so I, I would go Poltergeist, it's PG. Elaine, it's rated PG, how bad can it be? There you go, trust in the NBAA <laughs> of America, all right? There you go. And the third Nightmare on Elm Street, if you're at another 80, oh. grade 80. So. <laughs> all right, one, one, one at a time, Richard. We don't, we don't want to have Elaine, uh, you know, really go into a corner and knock, knock him out of the podcast until the next new week. Year. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We'll see Elaine next week. What happened? I watched Richard's three movies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, Those are good for the podcast. See, I'm going to come back next week looking like the girl from The Ring, having not slept <laughs> at all, being scared out of my wits. Then we I, will know. I have a friend who uh, he and his girlfriend saw The Ring, and part part of the scare of The Ring is uh, the TV goes on suddenly at time. That's that's the harbinger of doom. And he went through trouble of he went out and got a universal remote and hid out in a place outside their apartment. When she was alone there, so wait, waiting until she sat down at the couch, and then from outside, press the, the the universal remote, so the TV just went on and had set it to static, like the TV. I think that ended their relationship. I was just saying, I don't think they're still together, but uh, that's. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed the memories. We'll put it that way. <laughs> All right, that does it for this week. Richard, Peter, Elaine, always great to see each of you. As always, you can subscribe to The Ankler at theankler.com to get the latest from Richard, uh, my daily wake-up newsletter, all things from Peter, Elaine, and a very busy week of things coming up, as I said, in uh, media earnings season. And over at Strike Guys, Elaine's still definitely keeping on top of all the latest developments uh, with SAG Elaine. You'll be, uh, I'm sure, very busy in the week ahead as well. Yes, and if anyone wants to send me any tips, uh, Elaine at theankler.com. All right, fantastic. Uh, again, strikegeist.com, totally free. And Elaine rhymes with zeitgeist, right? Yes, yes. Okay. I've had to clarify that in recent weeks, which <laughs> makes me realize that after five months of writing this newsletter, <laughs> some people didn't really quite catch where the origin of the name. That's that's fine. Yeah. It's okay. All right, there you go. So G-E-I-S-T. There you go. As long as you can spell it, that's all that matters. Strikegeist.com. Uh, anyway, uh, thank you all for listening, and uh, we'll see you next time.